0: And I'm back. <clears throat> so, alright. This is going to get me into a lot of trouble, but... I I was planning... I, I thought John Gershom had announced a new book. So I was checking that out, and we were going to talk about it. And I I figured I would have feelings. like Because as much as I love John Gershom, I think he's a great author. He's still one of my favorites. His books have been very hit or miss for me lately. So, um, I wanted to make sure I was right. And I, I Googled him. And a story indeed did come up about him promoting a book. But it wasn't his own. It was by another author. And as I often knew, I started scrolling through the feed. This one was on Twitter. And I noticed something. And I, and I get this, too. I'm obviously, I'm nowhere near as successful as John Grisham. But, you know, I, I still get it, too. Um, including with, with a former friend. But we'll get to that. Um, a, a lot of people were like, oh, we, you know, we can't wait to read the book, whatever. Typical stuff. Um, but, intermixed with that, and it, it actually became a majority the, the further down you went, were people telling John Grisham what to write. Um, one said judges in their magic flying robes, um, another told him to write about Ayat Saneed. Interesting things like that. Now, the, the trouble with um, the, the magic robes, John Grisham is not a fantasy writer. I'm not saying he couldn't write them. He probably could. And he'd probably do very well at it. But up to this point, um, the commenter is supposed to be a fan of his since they're on his page and they're commenting you would think they would realize, hey, he's never written anything about magic. Maybe no. Um, maybe this is not something that he's interested in writing. Um, and then... The... the Sunid, now, that was, a, that was a decent suggestion... But there are two things wrong with it. A, we don't know if John Grisham has any interest in doing any more true crime. Um, after The Innocent Man, he went right back to legal thrillers. Um, and he has not ventured back into the waters of nonfiction. Will he? I don't know. But at this point, we can say for sure he has not. And it's probably safe to say that he probably will not. The second problem is there are already so many books on that case alone. Um, And a lot of it is thanks to Serial, which made the case very popular. And... In the the field of true crime, you you have to separate yourself, either by the cases you write about, or having an interesting take. It is not as easy as just sitting down at your keyboard and writing. I wish it were, I really do, because I could probably bang out like eight books in a week if, if it were really that simple. Um So so those are the two problems. But the bigger issue for me is I hate when people tell me what I should be writing. Um like you said, I don't get it often because I'm not as popular as John Grisham and usually when Usually when someone wants to speak about um, about something, um, like for this podcast or um, one of the, the essay-slash-articles that I'm writing, they approach it in such a way that it's, I thought you might be interested. But there was one friend, November O'Malley, who did Not do that. She was one of these douchebags who would literally tell you what to write. Um, when I was working on One Death to Live, there was, um, I was just finishing it up, and she decided to tell me that I needed to add in a character that made no- absolutely no sense for what I was doing. And I was like, no, like, I'm, I'm finished. Well, then end the sequel. No, that's not how this works. You know, I, and, and even now, I still don't quite know what the sequel is going to be. I haven't really sat down and thought about it. Um, but, and, and she did this a lot. And not just to me, to, to a lot of people. So when I complain about this, it's not just fans who do it. other authors do it too. And it might actually be worse with other authors because then they're trying to put their own spin on your work. And it's fine for like fan fiction and whatnot. but when uh, when, some, when a writer is working on a novel, a play, a script, even a short story, it is a labor of love. And, like, yes, I I treat my writing like a business, but it's still a labor of love for me. I love what I do. But I'm also pragmatic in that I need to eat. (laughs) So, don't try to force your view or what you think should happen onto the writer because the writer has spent time with these characters. He already knows. He or she already knows. What needs to happen in their their story, and I know I need to go and come right back and I'm back so uh, as as someone who runs two writing groups, um, I often get asked what writing advice I, I would give to people, and i and honestly, I always say it depends on the person you know. I don't believe there's one writing style or one um, one way to be successful writing. To me, it's uh, it. It just depends on your personality and what your goals are. But then I came across this piece of advice from. Stephen King, and I think it's brilliant, um, and it kind of. Well, I still think I'm right in a, and when I say that there's not one writing style, there's not one way to be successful writing. Um, it does kind of tie everything up. So let me let me just read this real fast. He says. I think the best stories always end up being about the people rather than the event, which is to say character-driven. And yes, um, you know, last week we did a lot of talking about the business of writing, and that's important. Um, for for people like me who, um, are are choosing a weird path, and by weird I mean kind of hybrid kind of, um, you know, part independently published, part traditional, um, part non-fiction, part fiction, um, articles, short stories, and all that, like, I, I, I run the gamut, and one of the things um, I'm going to talk about, "Love You to Death," my true crime book. One of the things that people kept saying to me after reading it was, "You know, you don't you don't give us all the details like um, other books do. Um, you know, the other books get into like the really grisly details of the murders and whatnot. We like that you don't do that, like." We get that they're dead, and we don't need all the graphic details and whatnot. Um, there's one in particular um, where Lizzie Dick killed her husband and cut him up into pieces. And the, the, other, the thing that people kept coming back to me is, you know, I felt like I knew her. I felt like she was a real person and not just some some murderer that was um thrown at us um by the police or by the the reporters or whatnot like you actually pieced together her her personality and you know it made us see her in a different way than we might have in any other case it, first of all that made me feel really good because i do i i've always believed it should be character over everything and i know there are people out there who disagree with me um and they think that it should be plot it should, you know it should be this or that but here's the thing when i write um, especially fiction, this is true. Like, when I'm working on Crazy Rich Homos, which I'm so far behind on, guys. Like, so far behind. Uh, it's going to take a miracle for me to get caught up. Um, anyways, w- like, when I'm working on Crazy Rich Homos, or Crazy Rich Wedding, rather. I let the characters take me where they want to go. Um, this uh, The scene I just wrote was supposed to be, like, a funny drunk scene. And they ended up turning into a sex scene. Um, there, there was another where two of my characters are supposed to be at each other's throats and hating one another. Um, but then they both, when I as I was writing, I was like, you know, I think this makes more sense. Like, maybe these two characters need to be getting along instead of. At each other's throats. Um, and, and here's the thing, like, when I write, my characters will tell me. Not, like, literally tell me, but, like, you, you get a feel for what you're supposed to be doing. And it, it really does help that I'm a pantser. Like, I never have anything prepared, which drives Will crazy. <laughs> but, uh... But more than that, um, I I do it because that's where I'm comfortable. Um, And at some point this week, we're going to talk about outlining. But for right now, I'm going to go and I'm going to be right back. And I'm back. So somehow this week has turned into the business of writing um, for our special segment. And I'm just going to keep with it because I kind of like it. Um one of one of the things that I think is really interesting and worth um talking about is series um in i I believe that we've talked about this before in in fantasy. Almost everything is a series. Um, Just because it has to be, Um, people really, really like that. And Robert Jordan, who wrote the Wheel of Time series, um, which thank you to Will for telling me this, it's interminable. Um, I think I think it was like seventeen books long or something like that. Um, But the reason why is because they sell. Jana Evanovich, who I love, she has like three or four series going right now. Um, the most popular of which is Stephanie Plum. And she's on 25 I think maybe 26, but she's way, way up there. Um, and you know, and uh, Joanne Fluke, who writes the Hannah Swenson, Mysteries, um, better known to Hallmark viewers as the Murder She Bakes series. Um, she has so many of them too, and so I was, I was, trying to like figure it out, like. What is this like? Especially with like Janet Evanovich, because she's cranking out two, three books a year, um. And they're all series. So I was like how how do you do this like how do you keep everything straight um there's the fo- she has Stephanie plum fox o- the fox and O'Hara which is another really great series I loved um she was I think she was writing that one with Lee Goldberg but he had to step away from the series because he um he had a couple of books that he needed to work on um and then i for- there's one it's a spin off of the Stephanie Plum series with, um, one of the main characters' name is Diesel. But, anyways, uh, but they all stick to this formula that works really well for her. Um, and basically the formula is you find the bad guy, or you know who the bad guy is. You have some sort of crazy misadventure. Get close to the bad guy, Bad guy almost wins someone comes and rescues the hero and voila. We're at the end. And I you know, it sounds like I'm bitter or I'm mad. I'm not. I hope I can find the formula that works for me that's just as is um profitable. You know, I at some point I do want to launch a cozy mystery series. Um there, I have two ideas baking in my head right now. Um, one is actually a spinoff of One Death to Live, my soap opera satire. And um, the other is kind of a different take on, on the genre and having a um, woman of color be my um, protagonist. Um, I, and then I, I had the fantasy series, which is, um, a, a planned series of four at this point, um, but honestly, because of how I'm writing, because of the occupation of my character spy, there's a chance that that could actually go, um, much further. I, four is where I'm starting, and, and then we'll figure out where I'm at after that, um, So here's here's the thing. For the readers, it's great because they get to visit with their favorite characters over and over and over again, which they love. For writers, it's great because, first of all, the formula helps you bang out the books faster. But more importantly, um, they're a profit generator, if you're, if you're going the traditional route, publishers love series, and they will actually give you a book deal for, like, two, two to three books at a time. Some, depending on how well they sell, you might even get, like, a five-book deal or whatever. Um, and I've heard, I've not actually seen this, but I've heard that, like, you can actually get an advance, which is unheard of in these times. For an author to get an advance on, on the books, which amazing. <laughs> um, but so, that is one. That is honestly one way to generate interest. It also makes it more valuable to the movie studios. Um, one for the money when it was made with Katherine Heigl, didn't do as well as people thought it should. Which you know it happens, but if if they wanted to, they could take um, the books and craft a TV series very easily on it. And guess what? That's even more money in Janet's pocket because, well, duh. <laughs> um, that sounded really sarcastic. I didn't mean it to come out like that, but yeah, like you can honestly turn. Um, these book series into like a TV series or a series of movies and make a shit ton of money. Um, J.K. Rowling makes a ton of money off the Harry Potter books and the Harry Potter movies. That's the thing is these it's not separated. Um, and, and that's why I want to stress to people is Turn to series. Um, there's a lot of independent authors I talk to who have at least one series going, even if they're writing standalones and whatnot as well. They have at least one series going because it's a profit generator. It's a way to get your work out there and recognized. Um, and the same thing goes for serialized work. Um, the, the more people see your name in print, the more popular it's like that you're likely to become and the more money you're going to make. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to come right back. And I'm back. So, okay. Um, y'all know, If, if you don't know, today is the start of Camp NaNoWriMo. Yay! And I have so many projects, it's not even funny, like seriously, so many projects, um, (laughs) <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> Sometimes I have to remind myself of this. <laughs> um, so recently, my my main gig kind of started changing the rules a little. So I decided to um, focus more on freelance writing articles, um, writing short stories and sending them out for publication. And, you know... Word count is a very important thing in with that. Um, you know, the one um the ones where I just wrote could only be up to five thousand words. Now most publishers will will give you a little leeway and they'll say, you know, this is what we prefer, but if it's a little bit over or a little bit short, we'll still consider you. But generally speaking, when they say we want between five hundred and five thousand words, that's what they want. I'm sorry that you know you can't argue with them about that. It gets a little more difficult to talk about word count though when you're writing a novel. Um. I, I had started writing. Um. A comedic, satirical, whatever you want to call it, uh, mystery novel. Back um, a couple years ago, and I pitched it to some agents and the one agent loved the concept. he just loved the concept. The thing was I had done I did it for Nanorimo, and he really wanted to buy it or he really wanted to represent me, but he wanted to wanted me to edit the, the story to make it 30,000 words longer. He wanted it to be 80,000 words. That was his threshold. And for those of you who have read my writing, you know, I I, I I'm very short on details. Like I give you enough to, to set the scene to help solve the mystery when I'm writing a mystery or whatever it is. But I'm not like... The tree's bark was brown, and it lifted high into the sky, and it nearly touched the Empire State Building with its green leaves, filled with chlorophyll. No, because y'all already know that, okay? Y'all already know that the tree is tall. If I say the tree is tall, and you know, to be fair, I might actually say the tree was as tall as the Empire State Building, But I'm not going to tell you that the leaves were green, because if I'm telling you it's warm outside and it's summertime, you can use your damn imaginations to figure out that the leaves are green. (laughs) But uh, that's neither here nor there. So um, I'm in a bunch of writing groups on Facebook. And one of the questions I see most often is, does my story have to be? And I guess it's a fair question. And, you know, and I would rather people ask than not. Because if you don't know, then you're going to make a mistake. But there's also a part of me that wants to scream inside and say, it doesn't have to be any length. You tell your story. And if, if the story is liked by a publisher, if it's liked by an agent... They're going to work with you. You know, we we writers often get so bogged down in these details, oh, it has to be this long, or oh, we have to do this, or we have to that we kind of lose sight of just tell the story. If you're writing a book, just tell your story. Maybe Random House won't pick it up. Maybe Stephen King won't blurb you. Maybe John Grisham won't put you on his recommended list. Or Oprah won't put you on her book list. But be true to your story. Don't be true to get on Oprah's book list. Because guess what? Then it's not your story anymore. Then it's Oprah's story. You know, in. The, the, the reason why I love NaNoWriMo so much is because, yes, they, they do say, you know, hit 50,000 words to win this contest. But I don't say that 50,000 words has to be the end of your story. They're just encouraging people to write. And more than anything, that's what I love. I love encouraging others to write, to create, and to follow their bliss. And I know I just sounded like Cher from Will and Grace there. <laughs> um, but seriously, I, I, I really can't emphasize this enough. You know, um, for this Camp NaNo, I actually have two projects. I'm going to work on a sequel to Crazy Rich Homos called Crazy Rich Weddings, where my two main characters are preparing for their wedding, obviously. And then I'm writing a horror script. Um, and it kind of sucks because my Mac died and I had my treatment on there and I didn't save my treatment. So I'm really hoping that I can get my Mac working again so I don't lose out on all this. And people are like, why? How can you do work on two projects at a time? 100% honesty here. I love Captain NaNoWriMo and, I, you know, I'm going to do my best to get them both done. But at the end of the day... I signed up because I just wanted to make sure I was writing and working on my projects every day and not just on the gig or writing articles or writing um, short stories to make money. I want to make sure that, you know, because at the end of the day, when, when these short stories, when the articles are no longer bringing me money, my books will. But we're going to talk about passive income later on in the week, I think. Um, right now... I'm going to go. And I'll be right back with the Michelle Stafford story. And I'm back. Alright, so... We're going to talk some James Patterson. Best-selling author in the world. Um, Various genres. Mostly sticks to thrillers. Um, and lately he's taken on a... Whole co-host... Oh. Let me rephrase that. Wow. He's taken on a whole host of um co- um co-authors. Um and like I said, they span the genres, mostly thriller. Um but he's made some really big headway into um true crime. And Whereas John Grisham actually did do gil- due diligence and look at all the evidence in the innocent man, James Patterson, I don't think did. Um, and I'm not judging. Okay, I'm judging. Um, here's here's my thing. I. I write true crime, and, I mean, I do it a little bit differently. Because I look at the the more human side of things. Um, And I also kind of poke around a little bit and see what evidence um, people have. Sometimes it's circumstantial, sometimes it's hardcore. But I always try to just see, like what what else um that another another writer might have missed part of that is because uh, my training as a gossip columnist um for generation gossip um for my trending stories and for drunk gossip has taught me like it. it's taught me to like slide up and eavesdrop and ask the right questions so to speak and, and so that's what I really try to do. So I was poking around and I've been looking into the Aaron Hernandez case. Which is really, really intriguing. There's, there's so much information available about it. And one of the things that I've kind of started to find is... He, um, he was out as bisexual. And for whatever reason, and again, I, I had not read the book myself. Um, but I was poking around looking online and it seems like this was just skimmed over. And I'm not sure why. Um, you know, I, I'm sure they had their reasons. I just don't agree with, with, with skipping over this. And I don't agree with skipping over this because I think um, his sexual orientation actually played a huge role in why he did it. After, after Hernandez hung himself, he. Um, it it came out um, that he had a lover in prison, and uh, he actually. Um, was dating another man when he was playing football and some people have speculated that he was even dating the man that he killed and that's the whole reason why the man was angry was because um, Hernandez would not come out I don't know if that's true, you know, and we may never know. And I can understand not putting that part in there. Although, the word allegedly was created for this situation. Where you could say it is alleged or allegedly yada yada yada. You know, people are so afraid to do that. And I don't know why. But, you know, something like that is a huge motive. And it flushes out the book a little bit more. It makes people understand, oh, okay, like, this is something that... This is something that really matters, like this obviously would affect how someone sees something. You know, it's... It's honestly so easy for us to say, oh... You know, he was just this big bully who had too much testosterone and killed. It's much harder to say that there were sexual politics at play, and I'm not sure why, um, when I was writing Love You to Death, in almost every case, there was some sort of sexual politics at play, um, the one that s- springs to mind immediately is, um, Bruce Snyder, who was the first woman, or the last woman killed, um, By the electric chair here in New York. she was having an affair. And convinced her lover. To kill her husband. So that they could be. um, So they could be together. And right there is just such a. Such a plot and such a. Um, there are so many other words that could be used, honestly, but you get what I'm saying. Like, you know, she she loved the man she was having an affair with. She wanted to be with him, but in all of the reports, except for one, it was very much. She and her lover committed the murder for the insurance money. But there was so much more at play than them just wanting the insurance money. Yes, the insurance money was a big factor. But let's take a look at what else was going on and why it was happening. And let's take a look at me going and coming right back. And I am back. So, alright, so you guys know I'm really in the true crime and... Um, I've been writing it like crazy. We've been talking about it every Saturday. Um, and so there was, this week, Jack the Ripper has been in the headlines a lot because they finally named who it is. But back in 2002, Patricia Cornwell, the infamous crime writer um, who writes the uh, Kay Scarpetta books, published a book of her own called um, Jack the Ripper or I'm sorry, it's called Portrait of a Killer Jack the Ripper, Case Closed in which she says Walter Sickert um, is the notorious serial killer and she lays out all these reasons like he had a deformed penis he was not able to have um, sexual relationships with women, his best friend got married and his the best friend's wife would not allow them to Continue being friends, and all this stuff, and it it led to a lot of controversy. A lot of controversy. Um. Yeah. Um. Uh, people in Britain said, "Hey, like you don't know what you're talking about, lady. Get your shit together. Like, stop saying this. It, it wasn't him. Um, Walter Sicker. If you don't know, is a very famous painter. And she actually used part of that as the reason why she thought it was him, because his paintings were allegedly um, very violent and very uh, misogynistic. So, you know, as as I've kind of ...weighted into the true crime writing realm... F- ...for a lot of it... ...I've actually tried to stay... ...as close to the facts as I could... Um, ...with very little commentary... ...other than snark... Uh, um, ...because... I, ...I've never really... ...been able to come up with an airtight theory... And clearly, Patricia Cornwall didn't either, because all these scholars came out against her and said, look, dude, you didn't do your research. You did not do this correctly. You don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, it just got to the point where we all had to question and we all had to say, what the actual... So, you know, I, my first... Um, collection of true crime stories, love you to death, Um, it really came together oddly. Because it wasn't supposed to be what it became. It it basically became wives killing husbands. And that was not my intent. Uh, It it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I'm always drawn to really campy stories. And in this case, when I say campy, I don't necessarily mean like... I mean, yes, these are over the top, over the top, but they're also very real and very gruesome. Um, but there was, and we've talked about Kyle Dean before, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep talking about him because something really struck me as as being very odd, and it like this theory has grown the more and more research I've done. Kyle Dean, if you don't know, was a porn star. Um, he did uh, straight in gay porn. And in gay porn, he did top and bottom. Uh, the, la- the most recent clip that I can find was him bottoming. And there's, there's a lot of ink spilled about how he had a drug addiction. and, You know, he was on pills and this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, that's all well, fine, and good. But there also has to come there, there has to come to a point where we look at this and say something's not quite right something doesn't quite fit here the fact that we haven't done that bothers me and the fact that this healthy 21 year old kid went from From that to dead in the span of a month. And nobody's blinking. No one's asking questions. Really bothers me. So I'm chasing this story. I'm trying to figure out, you know, was he killed? There's a lot of organized crime in. In. um, In porn. And so I kind of. I'm very curious as to whether or not there was a mob hit or, you know, did he turn someone down and they did something to, um, some pills he was taking or was this really just an accidental overdose? And So as I'm developing this theory, I'm also keeping in mind that, you know, if I'm going to write this book, which I really want to, and I really i am hoping to do it with the cooperation of his family. Um, but I want to do it justice. You know, and there were, right around the time of his death, within the span of just maybe three or four months, we saw multiple guys who were allegedly gay for pay die. And that's there's something wrong with that. But you know, I I go back to this and Patricia Cornwell is a very lauded woman. She's very successful. But I don't want to step in the same kind of controversy that she She was in. Because nothing good could come of that. And I'm going to go and I will be right back. And I'm back. So all week we've been doing drunk writing segments. Um, And I guess we're going to be doing a drunk writing episode on Sunday, so yay. (laughs) Um, uh, But yes, in the last episode, or the last segment, depending on when you're listening to this... I mentioned um, Harlan Coben. So I actually met Harlan. He's a wonderful man. Great, terrific writer. Um, I met him at a Writing Digest conference. He was one of the keynote speakers. And at the time, I didn't know who he was. Um, they kept espousing that he was a New York Times bestseller. And I was like, hmm, yeah. Okay. Never heard of him, but a New York Times bestseller. Uh And then I, I researched him. And he is indeed a New York Times bestseller. I believe one or two of his books. Possibly more. But I, I think there's two, at least two of them that actually did hit number one. Um. He has a show on Netflix. I believe it's called The Five. Um. And then the, I believe he has an overall deal with Netflix to create TV shows and whatnot. He, he's just a phenomenal writer. Um, I, I've read a couple of his books now at this point. Um, and part of the advice he gave to us was, first of all, to write every day, which seems like a no-brainer. But the second piece of advice, and the, this is the advice that stuck with me, is if, if while you're writing an idea pops into your head, throw it into the story. Even if it makes no sense. Even if it's like dinosaurs running around and you're, you're writing a contemporary romance. Throw it in and let it bake. Because you don't know what you're going to get out of it. And in a rough draft, anything goes. And so I'm writing this short mystery. Um, I'm not going to tell you too much about it because it's being sent out for publication. But I'm writing a short, um, a short mystery story, and I keep I kept getting stuck. Like I knew what the climax was. I knew what the ending was. But I. Just the buildup to get there. I could not figure it out. And I... You know... I was very frustrated. And Will, Will talked me through a little bit of it. Um, my friend Natalie talked me through some of it. But it, it, talking about it and actually... Feeling confident and comfortable enough to... Write the story... Are two very different things. Um, eventually, um, I had a breakthrough, and I wrote a lot of a, a big chunk of the story. Um, in the span of just over an hour, I went from seventeen hundred words to thirty eight hundred. So, and it's a four thousand word story. Um, so just some inspiration helped. Um, pacing helped. And I have a rule. And it's very much along the lines of the Harlan Cohen, um, advice. I break my story into different segments. In this case, it was a 4,000 word story. A 4,000 word maximum story. Um... So, every 400 words, I try to put in a twist. Or something that really... That propels the action. And every 800 words, I try to have a big twist. It doesn't always work like that, of course. Because that's not how writing works. But... When you, um, when you do it like that, it really helps to keep things moving along. And so, and that's really what I've tried to do. Um, it doesn't always work out that way. Um, I, I write a lot of shorter flash fiction pieces, um, for ContestOnWriting.com called The Writer's Cramp. And in that, I always break down my, um, that's a thousand word maximum. So I always break down my twist um, every 250 words, because again, that helps keep the story moving and it like sets you up to, and pushes you over the little hump that you sometimes crash into. Um, and so earlier, I mentioned Camp Nano, and um, I'm writing a sequel to um, Crazy Rich Homos, which is my parody of... Well, well, it started out as a parody of um, Crazy Rich Asians, and then kind of morphed into its own little rom-com erotica type story, Um, and so this... If I was following the same thing that he did, this would have been where one of my characters discovers he's actually um that the main character is actually rich. But it's not following that. It's actually following the um pattern of a relationship. So in the first book they finally become official. In the second book, Crazy Rich Weddings, they're getting married at the In the third book, um, they're going to have a baby. I know, spoilers. (laughs) But I've always kind of had, ever since I decided that this was what I was going to do, um, I've always had kind of the arcs planned out. But I also need to remember that since this is for National Novel Writing Month, even if it is a more lenient version of that. I need to, um, I, I need to have enough subplots and enough crazy twists to keep the story moving along at a nice little pace. And speaking of keeping things moving at a nice pace, I should go before I bore you too much and I'll be right back.